Okay, so it's November 13th, 2006, and I'm talking into this tape recorder. Well, I, I guess it's not really a tape recorder, just a recorder, a, a digital recorder. Anyway, Dr. Jacob said it might help if I lay the whole thing out at once, instead of in pieces during our sessions. It's weird, though. I'm sitting down here in the basement and talking to myself. You'd think this is the last thing a psychiatrist would want his patients to do. I'm a little nervous. I guess I'll just start. When I was a junior in high school, I lived near this amusement park called Pirate's Cove. It wasn't like Disneyland or anything, just a dinky little family-operated boardwalk that jutted over a lake. Like a tiny version of Coney Island, I guess. Anyway, like its name, it was pirate-themed. Men dressed in these long, scraggly beards and plastic swords and ran most of the attractions, bumper cars, go-karts, and women with corsets ran the concession stands and flirted with guests. Pretty sexist now that I'm thinking about it. But I loved going there when I was a kid. By the time I was in high school, though, most of the kids made fun of the place. The ones that still went did it ironically. They'd scream the entire time they were on the Ferris wheel. They'd try to pull off the pirates' beards when they weren't looking. Stupid shit like that. All under the influence of beer they'd smuggle into the park in their backpacks. I was one of those kids. I had a boyfriend at the time, Brian. And me, him, and his friend Peter would go there almost every weekend in the summer. They had this discount for kids in the school district. Brian had an older brother, and he'd fill the mini-fridge in his room up with tall boys the night before so we'd go over to Brian's house around noon, or whenever we'd wake up, and he distributed the beer evenly between our three packs. Then we'd dump a bunch of our dirty gym clothes over top them. The smellier, the better. None of the workers ever did anything more than open the zipper before you went into the park, and they usually closed it pretty quickly, too. And that was how we spent the summer of 99, drunkenly riding go-karts and making fun of grown adults in costumes. I don't exactly remember the day, I just remember that it was overcast, so maybe in August, like late August, when autumn's in the air. We took a walk along the far edge of the boardwalk, back where most of the administrative buildings were. No one went back there much. We were already pretty tipsy, and I think it was about three o'clock in the afternoon when we saw him. I think the only reason we noticed him at all was because he wasn't wearing a pirate costume. He was just wearing a white button-down shirt with a black pinstriped coat and matching pants and tie. He was sitting on a wooden stool, propped up against the side railing, and I remember that he was lanky and tall, like really tall, so that when he rested his feet on the bottom rung of the stool, his knees looked like they were almost at his chest. He had an easel, and in his hand he held a long, thick paintbrush. He was dabbing it in the paints and bringing the brush up to the canvas that sat on a stand in front of him, but he never pressed the brush to it. Instead, he traced shapes up and down, but weirdly, he never left a speck of paint. We watched him for a little, and the more I watched, the less I liked him. There is something about him that made my skin crawl. Something about 
his long knobby fingers swirling the paint on his easel, it, it just looked perverse. There was this one time I went hunting with my dad. We tracked this deer for like an hour until he handed me the rifle and told me to take the shot. I did, and I hit the deer right in the throat. It fell to the ground and sputtered and shook before crumbling into this bloody heap. That was what that man with the easel was like to me that day on the boardwalk. I know it doesn't really make sense, but the feeling I got watching that deer's death rolls was exactly the same feeling I got watching him swirl the paintbrush around on his easel. It was just this mix of uneasiness, fear, revulsion, I don't know. After a few minutes, he straightened himself up and slowly turned towards us. You want a picture? He asked. His voice was gravelly and he spoke in almost a monotone. Not me, I remember Brian slurred, but she does. Then he pushed me toward the old man and I could see a light in his eyes flash, but it faded because I lurched backwards and away. I was not interested at all. I told him, no thanks, I'm good. It will only take a second, the old man responded. I'll do it free, he said. Well, that got Brian's attention for some reason. You hear that, Brian said. He was looking at me expectantly. You might as well. Well, why don't you? I asked him. I wanted to get him off my back. So Brian made a face, shrugged his shoulders, and said, All right. These next few moments always stand out perfectly in my mind. Brian stood in front of the canvas, and the old man smiled. Slowly, he dipped his brush into his paints and began. He worked really quickly. First, he made a broad stroke in a pigment that resembled Brian's skin tone, and then he filled in the details. He touched only the tip of a smaller brush to the paints. He painted Brian looking straight ahead, staring even, and he accentuated Brian's eyes and nose, so it was sort of a caricature, but it wasn't cartoony or absurd like normal caricatures are. It really resembled more of a Dadaist portrait, like a disjointed, and with different shapes filling in sometimes for his joints and appendages. The whole thing was in this uh, brownish-yellow palette, and the clothes Brian wore in it looked like they were from the 1800s. He even gave him a bowler hat. The painting only took him a few minutes, and when he was finished, he placed the handle of the brush into his mouth and smiled as he handed the painting to Brian. Brian looked at it for a long time. I'm dapper as hell, he laughed, and then looked at me. You want a picture of me, babe? He said. I tried to play it off. I don't need a picture, I've got the real thing, I said. Cheesy, I know. Yeah, but what about when I'm not there, Brian said. Won't you miss me? He rolled the painting up and stuck it in the back pocket of his jeans. Here, I'll hang on to it for you. You have no excuse now. I pushed the issue. I didn't want the stupid painting, and I still couldn't shake the creepy feeling the old man gave me. What if I don't want it, I repeated. Susan, this is art, Brian said, turning to the old man. He was just watching us. This guy's a genius. You're going to see him up there in museums with Socrates and Picasso and all them. Socrates wasn't a painter, the old man said. He was a philosopher. That too, Brian said. It was such an awkward scene. This disturbing old man lecturing us on our historical figures while my boyfriend laughed and shouted at me in this weird, half-ironic way. Luckily, Peter spoke up and said that we had to get going because our parents were waiting for us in the parking lot. The old man just nodded and waved as we walked away. 
I hoped that Brian had forgotten about the painting, and by the time we got to my house after dropping Peter off, I thought that he had. But to my surprise, he put the car in park at the end of the driveway and killed the engine. I want to make sure you hang it up in a nice place, I remember, he said. I think it was some sort of power move, coupled with his own weird sense of humor. I'll hang it up if you want me to, I told him. He just shook his head and smiled. He ended up hanging it up over my dresser on the wall opposite my bed. He said he wanted to make sure I could see him at night if I ever got scared. I called him an ass, but I left it there. The first night was fine. The second was fine too, but by the third, I felt it working on me. I can't explain it, but I sat at my desk in my room, working on homework or writing in my journal or whatever, and I thought that someone was in the room with me. like. I started feeling the presence of another. I would hear my dad hammering away at something in the basement and the news anchor talking from the TV in the other room where my mom had probably fallen asleep. I could usually hear her snoring, but there was no one else, no one else who could possibly be in my room. I didn't think anything of it at the time, but that's when it all started. I spent the next few days hanging out with Brian and Peter, and sometimes my friend Mary. I think they thought I was acting weird though, because I wouldn't want to go home. I played it off, of course. I'd say things like, you know, there were only so many days left in summer, and I wanted to take advantage of them, or I'd give Brian a look, and he'd take me back to his place to spend the night, but more often than not, he'd have to work in the morning, or he'd be doing something with his dad, and he'd drop me back at my house around 10. I started to hate making the walk from the bathroom to my room after my shower at night. I'd grip the towel around myself and tiptoe through the dark hallway, my eyes wide, straining to adjust to the dim light. I wouldn't look at it as I walked into my room, but I knew it was there, staring at me. I got into my bed as quickly as I could and turned to the wall. Not for long, though. I always imagined the picture, that weird, distorted form of Brian would leap off the wall and run at my back. There was no helping it, so I turned to the direction of the wall above my dresser where I knew it hung. You're probably wondering why I left it up when it scared me so much. But the truth is, I didn't leave it up. I took it down, like, every day. It always found its way back on my wall. It seemed like everyone's mission was to make sure that it stayed there. Brian would ask me every day, almost, hey, how's that painting? And we'd sometimes drive from across town just so he could check up on it. When he found it underneath the dresser, there'd be like an inch protruding from the bottom. He'd grab it and hang it up again, looking at me in this sorry, condescending way. And when he wasn't putting it back up, it would be my dad in an offhand remark. Hey, I saw that picture fell down. I put it back up for you. Or my mom. I noticed that picture of Brian came down. You need to tape it up better. Sometimes it would be only moments after I took it down. It was like the world was conspiring to keep it there. I swear it would talk to me at night. I never understood what it was saying, but sometimes when I was in between sleeping and waking, I would hear a distinct voice. It was quiet and soft and sounded like it was engaged in a conversation, but I only ever heard one voice. I didn't think it was anything more than lucid dreaming at the time. Looking back, I was woefully naive throughout so much of this. I guess I can't blame myself too much though. We like to pride ourselves so much on being rational, scientific, but there are some things that can't be explained. One morning, I think it was a Saturday, I woke up and found that the figure in the painting had changed. 
It was still standing at a distance, turned toward the onlooker, but its eyes were gone. In their place were two thick, dark circles, as black as you could imagine. I was terrified, but I found myself drawn to them. I, I can't explain why. They weren't paint or marker. It wasn't anything placed on top of the canvas. When I touched them, yeah, I touched them, they were flat and smooth and cold, freezing cold. It was like touching icicles. The more I looked, the more I realized that they weren't opaque, but translucent. They reflected light somehow and shone brilliantly like onyx. But stranger than everything else, there was something inside of them. And I know this part sounds crazy, but hear me out. Inside the dark circles, in a mirror image, moved a pale, lanky figure. He was at a distance and his back was to me. He wore a tuxedo with tails and his head was bald and stark white. He swayed slowly left and right and I watched him, transfixed. After a while, he stopped. I felt entirely exposed in that moment. I wanted to run, run and never come back, but I just stood there staring. I stood there and watched as the man slowly turned toward me. His face was wrong. That's the only way I can describe it. It was inhuman, a monster, but at the same time, it was so human, as human as my mom waking me up for school in the morning. It terrified me. The thing walked closer and looked me in my eyes. I looked back, and then the dark circles and the man were gone. They dissolved into the whites, browns, and blacks of the original painting as I knew it. That night, when my mom and dad were asleep, I took it off the wall and to my dad's shed to set it on fire. I remember grabbing my dad's cigarette lighter and expecting the painting to go up in flames, but it didn't. The edge of the canvas would blacken, but it never caught fire. Not even when I dumped gasoline on it, not even when the grass was a monstrous blaze around it. As I'm sure you know from my record, I got put on Xanax after that. Things were better then, but I left the painting on the wall. I didn't touch it, I didn't look at it, and I tried my best not to think about it. It was hard at first, considering everything, but eventually things settled down for me. I bought a really tall bookcase, the thing reached almost to the ceiling, and I put it in front of the painting. Things got a lot better then. That was until the Sunday before school started. It was the last day of summer. I smelled it first, the burning. It reminded me of the camping trips my dad would take me on when I was in elementary school. That was the first thing I thought of as my eyes shot open. And I saw that the bookcase was on fire, the entire thing, a burning pillar of flame. And through the wood was the painting. I could see it clearly. There was this perfect oval in the back of the bookcase that the fire had eaten through. This time, the painting was on fire too. Real fire, I could see its edges blacken and turn to ash. The face of the figure was the last to burn, and I watched it burn. I wanted to make sure that it did. I watched it wither into black soot, my parents screaming at me to get out of the house. I stood outside with my mom and dad as the firemen put the house out. It hadn't spread beyond my room, and they had evidently found me standing right in the middle of the blaze, just staring. I don't remember that part, though. I do remember lying in the back of the ambulance as my dad held his head in his hands, and my mother stared and sobbed. It was the last day of summer. Brian wasn't at school the next day, but it was typical for seniors to skip out on the first few days of the new year. Not that any of the teachers condoned the behavior. 
So I wasn't concerned when he didn't show up that Monday or even Tuesday. It was normal for us to go a few days without talking. But uh, by Wednesday, I was starting to wonder, and it was that Wednesday that two police officers came to my house. When I got home from school, they were already there in our living room, whispering with my parents, who looked upset and anxious. My dad told me to have a seat, so I sat down on the couch next to them while one of the officers stood up from his seat across from us and grabbed his notepad from his pocket. The other officer walked slowly around the room. I couldn't imagine what he was looking for. Do you know Brian Marino, the one with the notepad asked me? Yeah, he's my boyfriend, I answered. He asked me when the last time I spoke with him was, and I told him it was a few days prior. The line of questioning went on like that. It was uh, vague questions like, what do you guys usually do together, or did he ever seem like he was in trouble? After that question, I started to panic. Did something happen? I asked, but uh, I already knew the answer. There was a pause. He's dead, the second officer finally offered. I felt my heart stop. Where were you on Monday, he asked. I told him I was at school, and my mom and dad were quick to back me up. I think the officers already knew I was innocent, though. They didn't act surprised. Did Brian have any enemies, the notepad one asked. I told them that I didn't think so. They left, and it was a few days later when I learned, mostly through rumor and gossip, that Brian had preheated the oven at his house to 450 degrees, opened the door and squeezed inside, going so far as to shut the door behind him. He was in there all day Monday and Tuesday. He only had his dad, and he often worked double shifts. His dad found him when he got back Wednesday morning. I left after graduating high school and moved east. I married, raised a family, but I'm sure you don't want to hear about that. You want to hear about how it's always haunted me that burning, painted face of my high school boyfriend. And it fucking has, all right. It's haunted me for a long, long time, but I've tried to keep it down. I was keeping it down until I visited my parents last week. We don't see them enough, so I brought my husband, Devin, and the kids down for the long weekend. We were having a great time. Mary still lives there, so I got to sneak away for a little and get coffee with her. Everything was fine. But as we were exiting the coffee shop, it all came back to me. The painting, the fire, Brian. And sitting on that same stool, working with that same easel and palette, was the man from the boardwalk, just outside the coffee shop. I stared at him. I was too shocked to move. Mary was on her way to the car, but she stopped when she saw me. She asked me what the matter was. I didn't say a word. I just watched as the old man waved and smiled. He smiled at me, almost knowingly. He looked exactly the same, like no time had passed. He was painting this young blonde-haired girl, and he put his brush down and handed the painting to her. I wanted to stop her, but it was too late, and her mom was already picking her up from the curb. She was in the car driving away. It's him, I said to Mary. Mary couldn't remember him. I could tell that she had no idea what I was talking about, so I tried to play it off. But as soon as she dropped me back off at my parents' place, I jumped in the car and drove right back to the coffee shop. I wanted him to still be there. I needed him to be. 
When I got there, I half expected to see his place on the sidewalk empty, but sure enough, he was there, his knobby fingers still tracing above his canvas. I didn't confront him. I ordered another coffee, and I sat at a far-off table, and I just watched him. Honestly, I wanted nothing more than to bash his face in, but I didn't. I was reserved, quiet, and I waited. The coffee shop closed at 5 p.m., and at 5 p.m., the man packed up his paints and easels and began walking, and I followed him. I don't know why. I followed him down Main Street through the new development on the outskirts of town and into the woods. I could hear construction around me, but they faded, and I kept following him deeper through the trees. He didn't look around for a marker or a path. He just kept his eyes straight ahead the whole time, like he had walked this way a thousand times. He finally stopped. He stood absolutely motionless. And finally, I kid you not, he began taking his clothes off. Bit by bit, he stripped down, totally naked, picked up his paints, and walked again in the same direction. So by this time, it was getting dark. I was able to keep track of him by the moonlight, which seemed abnormally bright. He walked for what must have been another 45 minutes or something before stopping at the edge of a large pool of water. He stood motionless and then began wading into the water. He didn't stop when it was at his chest. He didn't stop when it came to his neck. He kept walking further and further in until he was completely submerged. I waited for him to come out behind a tall oak tree. I know you already know this, but that's where they found me three days later half-starved and dehydrated, waiting for the old man to come out of the pool. I'm not really sure why you're making me record all of this. You're just going to call me crazy and lock me away. I'd probably do the same if I was in your shoes. But I left something in your office. It's under the file cabinet. I put it there when you left to talk to your secretary. See, as soon as I saw that old man again, I knew I was in it, all or nothing. I wasn't gonna, I couldn't go on living like nothing had happened, not when it was staring me in the face again after all these years. So I had him do another portrait of me this time. So get your lab coat buddies to take a look at it, keep an eye on it, and for God's sake, figure out what the hell it is, because I don't want this to happen to anyone else, not another soul. Funhouse is produced by Nate Gutman and Kim Scharfenberger. Last Day of Summer was written and composed by Nate Gutman and read by Kim Scharfenberger. 
please follow us on Facebook and Twitter at Phantom Space Pod and leave us a five-star review on iTunes. That really helps people find us. If you have questions or comments or just want to chat, you can write to us at phantomspacefunhouse at gmail.com or visit us at phantomspacefunhouse.com. And please consider supporting us on Patreon. As always, thanks for listening.